welcome listeners to Connect the Dots. I'm Allison Rodini, and today and every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, we bring you Connect the Dots, connecting the dots between your personal well-being, what's going on in our in our communities, in our society, uh, and what's happening here on planet Earth. And obviously, in 2020, there's a lot going on. I'm a long-standing journalist covering food, health, and the environment. Uh, policy and science, as well as media critic, um, and student of popular attitudes that underlie our uh, political choices and political failures and, and, you know, and other things like that. So that kind of weaves its way into a lot of what we talk about on the show. Um, today, I'm really excited to have a returning guest. who's um, been on the show a lot. Um, both because I really admire uh, his reporting tremendously and also because it's really close to my heart as someone first began kind of doing heavy-duty policy reporting on the issue of fracking. And so fracking, pipelines, the environment, you know, have been very core to my concerns. And today's guest uh, is just a brilliant reporter in that entire domain and enormously knowledgeable, and we'll be getting the benefit of that today. Our guest is Steve Horn of the Real News Network. Um, we've had him on the show many, many times back when he was on dsmog.com, and he's reported for a wide variety of other outlets, including The Guardian, Al Jazeera, The Intercept, Vice, uh, and many, many more. Um, and, you know, he's just brilliant on really tracking the details that back up our calls for protecting the climate in terms of really looking at the systems and infrastructures and how, you know, the game is being played with them, uh, rather than just looking at a single-ticket item, like, for example, the Paris Agreement, which is, you know, what the average person, uh, how, or, you know, taking riding your bicycle. That's how, the, you know, the average person relates to these really, these questions that are so core to our survival and future and that of other species on the Earth. Um, and he's just an absolutely first-rate reporter in this category. So, so happy to have you back with us today, uh, Steve Horn. Thanks for that kind of introduction. It's good to be back on with you. And, and uh, yeah, the, the admiration is uh, mutual. So, yeah, th- thanks again. I'm, I'm really glad to be on your show. Well, you know, it's really interesting because in looking at some of your recent reporting on The Real News Network, um, which everyone can find online at therealnews.com, um, you know, it's amazing how um, all of the same internal factors and policies and, uh, you know, the corruption, really, between the industry and the government that we've kind of been tracking and watching um, for, you know, a number of years are still in play now. So I think it's really important uh, to get an update about exactly where we are and not to mislead anybody, but let's start with the good news, because I think, you know, everybody who has been involved in the fracking, gas, and pipeline area is celebrating recent Supreme Court rulings um, that, you know, that, uh, that stopped several important, as well as some other factors, that stopped several important pipelines that, you know, many activists have been fighting and opposing and, you know, that, that have really been the front lines of, uh, you know, our opposition to, to climate change and to policies that drive climate change. So tell us first the good news in terms of the pipelines that are 
going down right now? Sure. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like a complex maze of different courts that made the decisions. You had mentioned the Supreme Court. Supreme Court had ruled for uh, the would have been the Dakota Access, right? No, that would have been, sorry, uh, mm-hmm. Keystone. Uh, yeah, so Keystone was, they, they had ruled basically that um, this, this will get to touch on all the other pipelines, so we'll start with Keystone, the, the, what, what it was actually ruled upon, which is uh, it got to the Supreme Court because the oil and gas industry at large, not just the owner of the Keystone XL, which was which is TC Energy, formerly known as TransCanada, but the industry at large intervened in that case, basically saying that, the original district court ruling in that case, they were really worried that it applied to the whole industry, and that was for this this fast track uh, permitting. Uh, I guess you call the scheme called the Nationwide Permit 12, and um, so basically uh, it, it moved through the, the court system. The Supreme Court had ruled that that um, that type of permit can't be applied to Keystone XL. Um, they needed to do a more comprehensive environmental review uh, under the National Environmental Policy Act, but as applied to the rest of the industry, at least for now, it still can be used. But I think that that's a really important case to watch because depending on the details of of what they say about Keystone XL might still set a pretty big precedent for the rest of the industry going forward. I think it was important, I mean, just very noteworthy that the American Petroleum Institute, the American Association of, of Oil Pipelines, and other groups had intervened directly in that case to show that that decision had direct impacts on the industry. That's the way they spoke about it. And the outcome of that case will be sort of really important for the industry going forward. And that, that speaks to the other ones that you mentioned. Uh, it's the same exact permitting type of uh, scheme, as I mentioned, the Nationwide Permit 12. And I'll explain what that is in a second of how they do the fast track. But that is what was used for Dakota Access, and that's what the – Mm-hmm. Judge uh, was basically ruling in that case. He said, "This is like a wholesale discarding of the National Environmental Policy Act. They didn't even analyze in a holistic way at all the the potential water impacts the pipeline could have on the Missouri River, which is what the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe has been saying now for five years that that those concerns were completely ignored as they fast tracked." that pipeline and built it across the Missouri River on land right next to their uh, reservation and, of course, on their historic tribal land so and tribal waters. So that was, again, it was uh, another kind of chipping away at this nationwide Permit 12, and that's a, that's a theme that, that plays out as well for the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Uh, there was ways that that one was uh, attempts to fast-track that. Uh, There's... Uh, uh, historically black community and their land that was they attempted to railroad and build that pipeline through. And so on all of those, it fits the common theme of use of fast track mechanisms, in particular the nationwide permit 12 to steamroll these pipelines through. And so I'll just say the nationwide permit 12, the Missouri river is a, is a great case in point of how this works. That permit is, is generally reserved for small projects, half an acre in size or smaller that cross bodies of water like the Missouri River. And what had been happening since 2012 is that uh, for the first time ever, this this program, this nationwide portal was used for large-scale nationwide, literally nationwide pipelines. So the first time it was used was the Keystone XL southern half under Obama. It was kind of this bait and switch that he did where he said, okay, I'm holding up the, the northern leg of it, but I'm going to fast track the southern leg. And what what that actually did, it wasn't just 
if you look closely at the language and that it wasn't just for the southern like at the Keystone XL, it was for pipelines at large for the whole industry. So it was kind of the way I was writing about it at the time is he kind of said, oh, hey, on one hand, I'm going to hold up the northern half of the Keystone XL, but hey, industry, you can have literally everything else in fast track. And so that, that's, that's the scheme that's been in place since um, you know, basically the second term of Obama into the first term of Trump. And it's kind of coming full circle. It's, it, there's been lots of legal challenges and, and environmental groups have been trying to chip away at that, um, kind of talking about it the way that I am, that it's this way around actually analyzing environmental impacts, around uh, ecological impacts, around endangered species impacts. And it's finally, I think they're, they're gaining momentum and, and courts are starting to realize, wow, this thing is really, really uh, developed in this way that's allowed these pipelines to advance in the way that they are. And so, yeah, it's very unprecedented that a judge had ruled, wow, that, that um, for Dakota Access, they need to actually remove the oil from the pipeline. And it's, you know, the, the fact that they held up uh, Keystone in the way they did and they actually said that this program can't apply to Keystone, it, it can't be overlooked that these are, this this program is definitely um, coming under pretty sharp scrutiny by courts, at least. So it kind of remains to be seen what right. how the details will play out. But, yeah, it's definitely significant. Yeah, I mean, I I recall um, an earlier uh, conversation that we had, probably going back four or five years, uh, or four years at least, uh, we were talking about this exact thing because it represented, you know, a significant, looks like a small detail, but it was a significant gutting of the national environmental, uh, you know, uh, protection uh, language, which is really regarded as, you know, kind of globally as the state of the art environmental regulations. And Mm -hmm. it was, and yeah, and this was done under Obama. It was done by Obama. And so on the one hand, and in the very year when, um, he was, you know, uh, advancing toward the Paris agreement, then within our own country, this is what he was doing. And the significance is not only that all of these major pipelines, um, came into being, you know, that everyone's been fighting because of this adjustment of the rule that, you know, you could kind of bypass the rules if it was a small segment. But these are all major pipelines, right? So they're not small segments. And so, you know, the practice was to cut up a, a large pipeline because the mm-hmm. whole point of the pipeline is to take the, the gas of the oil from one location some, some ways away. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so then each community is fighting this in their community under a different name, and it makes it extremely hard for people to organize and just say, we don't, you know, we oppose the entire pipeline. And, you know, the fact that they kind of hit, hit a wall uh, when they, you know, decided to go plowing through uh, Native American land and community, um, you know, really raised the profile of all of this. And, exactly. you know, I had done a East Coast pipeline story a couple of years earlier, and, you know, nobody really was thinking about pipelines. At first, we were just talking about where they're drilling. They're drilling here, they're fracking there, you know. Um, but, the, but really, it is the pipelines and the compressor stations and the ports and the LNG ports, you know, where they liquefy gas. These are all of the corporate infrastructures um, that keep this, uh, you know, the gas and oil industry in, in place, generating fossil fuels. So um, this sounds yeah, like a small detail, but it's huge. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, you, you raised so many good points there. And just to I'll, – I'll kind of tick through them real quick. Like, uh, just to start backwards, the, how much pipelines – and I'm not sure how many pipelines 
I mean, there was still a lot of pipeline infrastructure before the fracking boom began, but um, I, I haven't seen the calculation of how much was in place before. And, and some of these are being retrofitted, so of course not all of it's new. But I just saw a statistic uh, yesterday because I was looking into something pertaining to something we'll talk about later, which is the uh, carbon capture and sequestration and carbon dioxide pipelines. But anyway, um, it, it was a testimony that was given um, in front of Congress by uh, someone from Wyoming, and he was saying, yeah, an official in Wyoming, he, he was saying that there are 300,000 miles of gas pipelines. So I don't know how many were in place before, but it's it shows like a lot of these, there's no way you can build that much pipeline so quickly um, if you were going through the um, you know, the proper process, which is the National Environmental Policy Act process. And the industry knows that. They know that if they're actually informing communities, hey, we're going to be building this, um, you know, maybe in your backyard or, or you know, through, through uh, a waterway that you, you care about, they know that if they went through that whole process, it would slow things down and cost them a lot more money. And, of course, that that's the price they have to pay to comply with, the, with NEPA, but that's the price they don't want to pay. So that, that's the central focus point of all this, which is that NEPA is not, and I think it gets to the point that you were saying about Obama versus Trump and, and talking about the history. We have to talk about the history with Obama because now, of course, NEPA is under full-scale attack by the Trump administration. They're just trying to completely roll it back and how it applies. But it, it didn't just get started under Trump. Like kind of the the whole uh, the momentum got started under Obama. And that's the last, that, that just the last point I'll make is, you, you had mentioned during Paris, and that, that's the whole thing. It actually, during the Paris summit, it's kind of almost too crazy, uh, to, you know, it's hard to believe, but during the Paris summit, it was actually in the midst of that, this bill called the FAST Act passed, and that's what created this whole mechanism, basically, the fast-track pipelines and other infrastructures, not just pipelines, it could be federal uh, interstate highways and stuff like that, but Basically, it created the fast track mechanism. It created a whole new agency that's dedicated to this stuff called the Federal Infrastructure uh, Permitting Steering Council. So that's now within the, the Council of Environmental Quality within the White House. So, as on the one hand, we keep we talk about Paris as this monumental, important agreement and this 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 bar that we have to meet to meet our climate change demands. As it was happening, they were fast. They were creating an entire kind of a, not just a streamlining like law but an actual thing within the government that, that makes it happen a whole office to facilitate fast tracking and yeah as you said it's really important that the details seem like really mundane and they, they get kind of boring but th those are the things that facilitate uh the issues that all of us care about so that's uh that's right. why it's important yeah no that's exactly right and then it's also really confusing it's like immediate cognitive dissonance um, you know, when the president that you have hold in better regard than this current occupant of the White House, you know, the, the predecessor who, you know, so many people held in high regard is, uh, you know, with the one hand is doing this and then the other hand is doing that. And that's, you know, unfortunately, and then, it, of course, then it all gets accelerated under the uh, successor, you know. So, exactly. you know, and this is why many people don't vote or feel they're being played, you know, or, or a lot of people are confused or loyal or, you know, there's a lot of confusion around the political parties. And it's not just, you know, for no reason. It's because of things like this. I mean, you know, and they keep. So how is this, for example, so, you know, what what are big takeaways or two? One is that, um, 
you know, you can't really trust either party that much, unfortunately. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, of course, one is worse, so we're not having that particular discussion. But, you know, we're just in right. the event that uh, the current occupant is replaced, hopefully, uh, then we'll be dealing with this. It's not going to be like now we hit paradise, you know. Um, so I think that, and that's why I think this kind of reporting is essential so that people aren't, you know, uh, unprepared and thinking, you know, oh, it's all done. Uh, because I think that's how we drifted into this situation. And it's not all done, no matter who, you know, winds up there. And I certainly hope that it is the Democrats. But, but on the other hand, it's cold comfort, you know, given this kind of history. And I think we can't lie about that uh, just to make people comfortable. It's our job as reporters to mm-hmm. tell the truth and, and really realistically see where all of this is trending. So, you know. Yeah, what, yeah so the takeaways so, are, I can give you quick ones, yeah. Um, so the key takeaways are it's really important to keep following this Keystone case, um, especially for the what the the future of the nationwide permit 12, because that will be relevant no matter who's the president, um, you know, come after November. But also, um, I think that we also, because you, you, you kind of mentioned, okay, well, we were kind of asleep at the wheel. Like a, a lot of the climate movement was very, I wouldn't even say they were asleep. I think they ignored a lot of what Obama was doing or kind of downplayed like the, the scope and gravity of how, we'll just say how bad some of the things that he was doing were. I think that the climate movement hopefully has evolved since then. Um, it's significant because, of course, Biden was his vice president was happening under his watch as well. And it seems like people are more attuned and more in the, the mode of accountability and pushing on these things than maybe uh, during the Obama era when it was there's a lot of uh, – you know, we'll say affection for President Obama and, and maybe not wanting to push him in the way that he really needed to be pushed. But, you know, whenever he was really pushed hard, that's when they got wins. Like, they got a delay on permitting with the Dakota Access. They got this still ongoing delay over Keystone XL. So, yeah, it's just um, it shows that that kind of scrutiny is really needed for powerful people like the President of the United States or, you know, the Vice President at that time who may become the President. So... Yeah, I think those are the big yeah, takeaways. Exactly. Right. And so, you know, I think the thing is, is you know, if there's a, a kind of a the takeaway from this whole segment is, you know, while we celebrate the wins, you know, yay, hey, <laughs> Dakota Access, wow, you know, um, and these other pipelines, you know, KXL, that was huge uh, throughout the Obama administration, you know, been fighting that a long time. While we, while we mm-hmm. celebrate those things, we have to look at where the overall infrastructural picture, be, you know, is going. And, you know, in other words, where, where does this leave us? What do we have to be, you know, focusing on now? And, and also in the event that uh, hopefully, you know, the president is replaced by somebody, you know, I don't even know where to go with that. Uh, <laughs> I know what you mean. replacing somebody, you know. So, yeah. um, you know, we're, what is that going to pretend? I mean, so let's first talk about, you know, how are these infrastructures marching on even with these wins? I mean, let's just go there, and then we'll look at the, you know, we'll scrutinize what's going on, you know, what's upcoming in terms of the Yeah, election. well, right. So that gets to the other part, which is, like, the big picture, the the infrastructure and, and all that is that, you know, the Nationwide Permit 12 program, what the Supreme Court actually did was they said that the program can live on. So the industry was 
pretty much rejoicing over the fact while they said, oh, we're, we're sorry to see that TC Energy and the Keystone XL pipeline, they didn't get what they wanted. But, you know, at least this program still exists for us. That, that's the big picture thing with that. And that's kind of significant. Um, and this is actually probably a good transition to talk about the um, a little bit about the, the, the debate over the uh, – the party platform for the Democratic Party. But basically, this still fits in really well because there was a bill that just passed through the Senate um, through the Defense National Defense Authorization Act or the, the, the Defense Budget Bill, and it was a provision uh, that that um, incentivizes the growth of carbon capture and sequestration and um, carbon dioxide pipelines. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's um, – I think it's important because it's kind of this – I'm going to – you know, kind of walk through the noise, kind of talk through the noise on this swanky sounding topic. Basically, right now, as it exists, basically um, carbon capture utilization, it's called, and sequestration, CCUS, is a way to do something called enhanced oil recovery because the other way, which is just sequestering it in the ground um, after it's burned in a power plant, has proven extremely expensive and not really something that has grown to commercial scale. But the one that has grown to commercial scale um, and been replicated is called enhanced oil recovery. That They sequester the carbon for a while, then they move it through a pipeline. They use that carbon, and that's the U part. They use it to uh, you know, inject it into the ground to do more oil drilling. So it might be in a well that they thought was not you know, it was not productive for a while, so I need to pump into it for a second time. So it's, it's actually one of the main ways that we get oil and gas right now in the United States is through this, um, or I guess oil, enhanced oil recovery. So um, I think 60% of oil in the United States is obtained from what's called EOR. And kind of just to get back to it, so uh, this was in the, in, the, in the budget bill, there's something called the Use It Act. It's a piece of legislation that was inserted as a provision. And that Bill also uh, fast tracks the build out of CO2 pipelines through the same mechanism I was talking about through the federal permit uh, infrastructure steering council thing. So it would, it, you know, under that, that the banner of the FAST Act, it would, if, if the House does include that provision in the bill, that would be, and Trump signs it, that would be the new law of the land. It just goes to show that we, we have this, this, legal mechanism that's set up for the industry that if they want to include provisions and bills and, and obscure things in ways, it, it can have long-term repercussions. So basically this is a, yeah, this, this, this is a big thing because it's, there's also provisions about this within all the new democratic plans to incentivize the build out of CCUS and, and the way that, that Biden described it in his plan. Um, he said that he wants to quote unquote double down on you know, CCUS, which basically means a, a doubling down on enhanced oil recovery. And I, I like the metaphor for it because that, like, EOR is actually a doubling down for oil. It's your second or third time going down there where you maybe didn't get the oil the oil you wanted the first time, so you use the carbon dioxide to pump it down there and get more. And it, it, it actually, uh, you know, you and I both cover fracking. It has a lot of parallels with fracking and it's injecting this stuff far under the ground um, and injecting different chemicals, using a lot of – it actually uses more water than fracking. It has a lot of parallels. It's less known, but I think that it's going to be increasingly pushed in the years ahead, uh, maybe even more than fracking, because I think it might be a little bit less expensive than fracking once they can get the pipeline infrastructure in place, the actual drilling process. So 
um, yeah, it, there's a you know, much broader Amazing. push going on in this space. Yeah, it's really important, and um, it has very much bipartisan acceptance. I'll just give, if you want to, uh, the, the most clear example of how much how bipartisan of acceptance it has right now. So, Sheldon Whitehouse is one of the co-sponsors of the Use It Act, which is the provision in the budget in the defense budget bill. And one of the other co-sponsors, so Sheldon Whitehouse is well known as a quote-unquote climate hawk. He gives his, you know, his quote, uh, time to wake up speeches every week on the Senate floor about climate sure. change. So he's known as an out, outspoken advocate. But he is joined in that bill by James Inhofe, senator from Oklahoma. He's known as the most notorious climate change denier in the United States mm. Senate. He wrote a book called The Greatest Hoax. So this has, you know, cross unity type of acceptance. It's being promoted by the Biden uh, team in his uh, climate plan. And it has been promoted in all the different plans that have come out in recent weeks. So I think that that's where this, that's where these things connect going back to the the pipeline case. It's a new type of pipeline, the carbon dioxide pipelines that would lead to more drilling at the end of it. And yeah, it would obviously lead to more potentially more refineries or, you know, pumping money into those for the actual carbon dioxide, more uh, incentivizing power plants that have this CO2 uh, capture mechanism. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a significant thing that's happening kind that's of under huge. the radar. Yeah, that's pretty huge. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing about it also, there's a couple of comments. I mean, this is the ultimate, you know, late-stage excavation. You know, where, you know, the whole country was originally brought into this addiction on fossil fuel, on more easily accessible and abundant oil and gas. And then as the resources are depleted, it gets, you know, worse and worse and worse and dirtier and dirtier and scarcer and scarcer. So, you know, instead of building, you know, crossing the, you know, the line and building the new energy future that was promised in the Green New Deal and that, you know, 65% 65% of Americans want and support, you know, they're doubling mm-hmm. down in those few last drops, and then they're in- making huge investments um, in building all of this in- infrastructure, having already built the other infrastructure, you know, for this last gap, you know, kind of form of energy. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's just such a... Uh, you know, it's just like going over the hill with the lemmings to keep on doing the same thing, thinking that you're going to get a different result. And it also reminds me that at the beginning of the fracking fight, Obama and Clinton as well um, called it the bridge, you know, to renewable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet here's this bridge, and they're building another bridge and another bridge and exactly. another bridge because they can't let go, mm-hmm. you know, of this. Mm-hmm. And, you know... How does this, I mean, we progressives were hoping that we could be looking at a Green New Deal. Uh, and instead, you know, this is what we're having to settle for. And it seems like it will have terrible climate impacts um, and accelerate, you know, where we're trying to avoid heading. Well, I think that, so this whole topic that we're talking about has um, sort of been, little bit in the weeds issue. There might be a couple, I know there's like a few climate groups that work on it, but it hasn't reached the same mainstream sort of uh, status as fracking has in terms of, uh, it's sort of maybe where fracking was at the very beginning, like when you were working on it, there was some groups where, but it didn't really have a national 
radar on it. Yeah, I think that's where this one is. It's, it's maybe less um, you know, community group oriented and more. There's just a few national groups that are really into it and, and kind of calling it out like um, Clean Water Action would be one of the groups or Food and Water Watch. Those are the two main ones that are really tracking this closely as well as Friends of the Earth. I guess those would be the few that are following this super closely. But I think it's kind of just previewing, if, say, if Biden gets elected, even if he doesn't, the Trump administration, I'll have to say, uh, they support this as well. That's what I mean by bipartisan. So it's the Use It Act has the bipartisan. Also, the Trump administration is pushing this. So, so regardless of who wins in November, this is something that's gaining momentum. There was a hearing today on this very topic within the, the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee in which, again, they had bipartisan type of uh, people who were testifying for had a representative from the Bipartisan Policy Committee, which is a corporate-funded think tank. It had Ernest Moniz, who was the former Secretary of Energy under Obama. It had his deputy, um, Julio Friedman, who was the Assistant Secretary of Fossil Energy. And then it had the head of that, you know, the same uh, Assistant Secretary of Fossil Energy uh, for the Trump administration, Steve Winberg, was there, et cetera, et cetera. So it shows that there's lots of bipartisan. It's kind of a way that they're pointing this as, this is something that um, keeps the fossil fuel industry in business. It keeps people employed. It's something that the labor unions are behind. And it's a way that they, they're they selling it as a climate solution. They're saying that this keeps carbon out of the uh, atmosphere. And it's kind of the complete opposite of what a lot of the climate movement is calling for, which is keep carbon in the ground, right? No one, no one in the actual grassroots climate movement is saying we need to keep their main cell is and we need to keep carbon out of the atmosphere. Their their main thing is we need to keep you know, keep it in the ground. That was the whole movement that had existed towards the end of the Obama administration, which is keep it in the ground movement. The whole we need to stop they focus on public lands and we need to keep keep the carbon in the ground in public lands. So we're seeing a shift among especially I would just call it like the neoliberal segment of the uh climate movement, the Moniz led type of part of the movement. Their new sales pitches. This is, uh, and even he sold it as this, um, as it's a new way of doing all of the above. It's a, it's a way of not, you know, basically jobs not being lost. And what I fear, you kind of asked about the Green New Deal. Uh, there was an article in the Intercept last year that was very strange. It was kind of promoting CCUS and saying that the left is coming around to support CCUS or cautiously supporting it. And there was a quote within it by one of the backers of CCUS saying that um, Ad Markey, who's uh, one of the co-sponsors of the Green New Deal resolution, they're sa- he was saying that Markey told him that he supports CCUS as part of the Green New Deal. And then, of course, that was someone saying it. I don't think Markey has openly said that, but there is a history of Markey supporting CCS when he was the um, co-author of the uh, 2009 cap-and-trade bill, uh, which was the, the main climate bill they tried to get passed under Obama. So it's not clear. I think that all of this hinges upon like how how are the grassroots going to react to this? And as I said, it, it shares a lot of parallels with, with fracking in terms of the water usage, in terms of injecting stuff under the ground and, and not totally knowing the impacts it could have. Of course, this there could be leakage of the CO2, same kind of way as there's leakage of the methane. And so that means you know, there's climate issues with it. So a lot of questions that would be raised. I think that we're at like we're we're at a much different stage than we were uh, ten years ago when we're talking about the Wax and Markey bill. So I'm, I'm not even sure if Markey would would um, support it now. This guy said that, but he had 
an ulterior motive to say that, that Marky told him that because he's a supporter of it. But yeah, I recommend uh, checking out that Intercept article, which is saying the left is coming around to CCUS because it shows, it at least shows the broader coalition that is built around this between the labor unions and between uh, different Democratic Party politicians and uh, just is showing like what the forces in place that are pushing uh, CCUS to the status that it's at now. Well, that's, I'm now going to have to eat crow uh, with a friend ally who was saying it was going here to carbon capture all along, and we've been, you know, debating that because I was <laughs> I was more optimistic about the Green New Deal talking with, you know, some of the, uh, uh, you know, academics and, and thought leaders who are, like, developing what the, you know, what actually would be going on in terms of policy behind that rubric, uh, and I wasn't hearing anything concerning this. And it's this, this yeah, it's not saying, in it. Yeah, it's that, all to be go clear. Here. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is all. This is just all according to one, one source in that article said that Markey told him in a meeting that um, he would support CCUS being part of it. But like I said, he has a. Uh, you know, a, a career motive for saying that because he wants CCUS to grow. So, but yeah, I, I found it to be strange that it was this kind of PR piece on CCUS within the Intercept, which is supposed to be an adversarial outlet. But it, it seemed like it was basically like a PR pitch from some of the, lab, the major labor unions or something to try to sell them on it as a great kind of win-win climate solution. But when you actually examine CCUS, you see all kinds of environmental issues with it and, and even potentially big climate issues. So uh, it just depends on who you're getting information from, what we'll say. What are the what are the issues of, you know, playing around with this carbon and using it, you know, as a uh, industrial tool? I mean, is there any, do we have any, uh, you know, you know, is there any science on that? Like, what are we actually doing by, you know, it, we pushed it down into the earth to help bring up something else, and then what happens to it? I mean, you know, is it, is there any reason to think that carbon capture uh, w- would be helpful as opposed to, you know, just a shade less harmful or something? I mean, where is it on that scale in terms of, you know, we had to build this whole thing, and it took science and research to finally establish that, you know, it's a methane release. Um, that was yep. the most immediate climate impact. So what do we know about, about about carbon capture in that regard, or is that not yet known? Um, we're, yeah, we're, it, it, it's, I don't think it's quite, like, large-scale enough, and it's, I, that I could see, because I was just trying to look at some of the scholarship on it, there hasn't been a whole ton of great research, uh, like, the, <laughs> as you said, the, the escape of carbon dioxide. There, there has been... Um, some stuff on it, and what I what I could find on it is there's definitely concerns over the same thing with like the integrity of the stuff that you're putting under under the ground, and, and if there's any type of leakage from it, um, which uh, they say it's actually what I what I saw. There's a, I forgot what year the study was, but there's actually potentially like uh, percentage-wise a greater risk of carbon escaping from these types of uh, mechanisms that go under the ground as compared to natural gas. I forgot the exact percentage, but and I wish I had the study in front of me. But, yeah, there's definitely – I think there's – that just goes to say there's the same type of concerns, and 
the it goes back to the there's the same there's this mix of chemicals. It's not just that you're pumping carbon dioxide under the ground. It's it's other chemicals as well that are being injected under the ground to try to tap into that oil. So it, it shares so many similarities to fracking in terms of the potential for that to also like maybe contaminate groundwater. So it's both the climate concerns of the leakage um, of the carbon dioxide, because of course the whole point is to sequester the carbon, not for it to emit in there. But so there's concerns right. that over that, and yeah, the same type of concerns with the integrity of water. And we're it's still so I think so new, and I don't think it's been a major, like a huge uh, topic of scientific uh, focus for right. any type of way that, that, that tracking has become. <laughs> Yeah, yeah so we're in the midst of they've a, already a, built it out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, pros, the precautionary principle, yeah, has not been applied to this one. I mean, it's still early stage ish, but like I said, it's not that early. Like sixty percent of oil drilling in the United States is done through enhanced oil recovery, so we're already pumping a lot of this stuff under the ground in different places across the country. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because. I've done numerous programs, including quite recently uh, and upcoming as well, on regenerative agriculture where the goal is really to pull the carbon down from the atmosphere and embed it with, you know, biodiversity and microbes and everything else and plants, plant life and, you know, fungal life and insect life and all of that in the soil and hold it there. So here you have kind of an organic, you know, natural uh, cultivation process that mm-hmm. holds the carbon and and keeps it there. And the output of that is healthy food, you know, because then they grow food on this land and they raise livestock and, and all of that. And it holds water so we don't have the dehydration or the chemicalization of, of food agriculture that we're now suffering with and everything. And here instead, you know, the option is let's face getting carbon um, in the ground and even, you know, an, an even worse chemical process than we had before, you know, and, like, try to manage keeping it there when here there's, like, this parallel natural process, um, you know, that we don't invest in, that we don't know about, and, you know, keeping these um, you know, the people who like to work with toxicity, you know, who – you know, because they can own it and master it or whatever, you know, are in the lead, um, using up all the resources and then managing the uh, toxic hell that's thereby created, you know, in, a, in, a, in an additionally toxic manner that is launched before we even have studied what the actual risks are. I mean, I'm sure they haven't because we had to fight for tracking studies, you know, for scientific mm-hmm. studies. They came years later. Mm-hmm. Things that we, you know, the people observed, Either because hey, I know they're putting heavy metals in the you know in the earth here, putting um, radon or whatever you know pull, pulling up natural radon that can't be good, you know. And hey, we're seeing animals become ill or people become ill. You know, this is all anecdotal, um, right. out of the human observation, which is discredited until somebody studies it. And then the studies all come later. Oh yes, it is co- contaminating water. Um, but at the time, they didn't study it. They didn't want to know it. They denied it. More denial, more denial. You know. So here we are, like on the cusp of another round of that. This is really, really uh, disappointing. I mean, you know, it's really yeah. Disappointing. You know, you know what? Also, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, like that goes to the whole like studying and scrutiny and like I said, EOR is not 
new. Like, I mean, it, it exists. What they're trying to do is vastly expand it and call it a climate solution. And I'll just say two quick follow-ups. One, regardless of, of whatever carbon that they somehow keep out of the atmosphere through this complex mechanism of you know, sequestering it and pumping it through a pipeline and then injecting it back into the ground to do more oil drilling, Eventually, that the whole process. If you look at the whole, there's really another parallel fracking. If you look at the whole life cycle. That's that's what really matters. Is this oil is going to come back out of the ground? It's going to be piped somewhere else. It's going to be refined somewhere. It's going to be used somewhere. If you look at the whole life cycle, there's there's no way that this isn't going to have a major greenhouse gas impact. The same way that if you look at the whole life cycle of fracking. Um, they, you know, they conveniently might like to talk only about the, the natural gas power plant compared to the rest of the life cycle. So that's where, right. that's the kind of conversation that they're not having about this. They kind of narrow it so much that they say, oh, you're saving it there. And they just point to that one part and distract a lot of people with the bigger picture. And that, that kind of gets to the whole, just another thing with uh, looking at the impacts itself. Like how do they, how how, did, how have they gotten this far? Like how how is it sixty percent of oil drilling? And there are similarities to fracking in that too. There's something called the EPA Class Two injection well category, and that whole program is vastly uh, understaffed in terms of looking in you know look, just doing inspections of all these different wells and seeing what impacts they are. So we we um, basically have this whole process that uh, that allows it to take place without too much scrutiny even by the, the the regulatory agency that's supposed to be overseeing it, which is EPA, which of course is very similar to what happened with fracking and the different exemptions that were landed and, and the pro, you know, the programs that were in place to exempt the industry, in that case, from the Clean Water Act enforcement or from the Safe yes. Drinking Water Act enforcement from the Halliburton right. loophole of 2005 yep. energy bill. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities. I, I, I would, I, I'll be in, I'm intrigued to see um, if there's going to be, if this will turn into sort of a similar national rallying cry or at least something, maybe a lesser state of it for uh, enhanced oil recovery. But I definitely think it's a it's a growing prospect, especially when, when something has bipartisan acceptance. It's something that we, <laughs> just to reframe it, we always hear bipartisan. I mean, why can't the two parties get along and, and uh, why can't uh, we can't get anything done? But when, whenever you hear bipartisan, I think that yeah, I think that it should perk up your ears and there might even some fears about <laughs> what does that actually mean. <laughs> I think that's what anyway, I've seen at least on, what, on a lot of energy issues. Yeah. What a phony White House is. Wow. You know, lecturing about climate change and then, like, yay, hooray for this? Wowie. Um, you know, yeah, and so it's... basically you, you sound cynical if you say something like that and people are like, don't take my hope, hope away. And it's like, you know what? We're not the ones who took your hope away. <laughs> you just don't know <laughs> your hope away because you're not paying attention to this unless you read, you know, see porn on the Real News Network and listen to Connect the Dots. I mean, you know, people are just completely, uh, you know, uh, ignoring this and paying attention to their daily lives as people are wont to do, you know. So, I mean, it's really, it is shocking because the whole thing, it's kind of like, yeah, it goes back to the 2005 energy bill, right? And then fracking began happening, you know, about three years later, 2007, 8, 
uh, you know, eight and nine is when, you know, the Northeastern movement really, you know, began getting into the act. Nobody knew what the word fracking meant, you know, and mm-hmm. that took a long time. And right now, here we are, you know, with this kind of going to be coming into law, whoever, and, you know, actually being ruled on right now, whoever is the next administration. And then, you know, when the stuff starts showing up and being problematic without prior scientific study, everybody will be saying, CCUS, where does this come from? Actually, I have a question. When, um, when the proposal for the Green New Deal was introduced by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey, uh-huh. um, there was a, you know, kind of brief vetting by the Republicans on the, I think it was the Senate floor, no, it might have been. No, I'm not sure if it was the Senate or Congress. I can't remember. But basically, it was a bunch of people grandstanding, one after mm-hmm. another, mainly Republicans. And they were basically saying, I trust technology to solve this problem. We don't need this. And, you know, uh, and, and they were referencing something. Was it this? Were they, were they basically already lobbying for you know, the CCUS and what what you're talking about here. Do you recall Good that question. incident? With- mm-hmm. I'm not sure. It, it would be worth looking at some of those floor remarks to see, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. There, there's a couple points to be made about that. One is if you look at the year before the bipartisan again, it, I mean, it takes bipartisan to get stuff through. So by its nature, if something passes, most likely there's going to have to be some bipartisan acceptance. So in 2018, there was a passage of a tax extension or a tax provision that would extend into uh, CCS or CCUS, and it's called 45Q. It's provision within the uh, Internal Revenue Service Code, and it gives tax incentives for building out this infrastructure. So that that passes as a provision in some other kind of budget bill called the Future. I mean, the, the original bill is called the Future Act. So that passes the year before. 2019, you mentioned that. I'd, I'd be curious to see if, if it was ever referenced by any of the Republicans. I think what the Republicans were trying to do there is force a vote. They were saying we don't support the Green New Deal, but we want we're going to make the Senate Democrats yeah. vote for this because that was when a lot of them were, you know, like Kamala Harris and, and Cory Booker and others were running for for president. So I think they wanted to force uh, a vote on this. So it wasn't like a serious thing for them. But I think that within That's all right. of that, you could maybe see. Like, you, you do raise a good point. Right? Were they? Were they citing something like CCUS as a climate solution in any of their comments? I wouldn't be surprised because fast forward to 2020 and just last week, I believe, there was at least six uh, Republican senators, including Lindsey Graham, who co-wrote a letter calling for, among other things, they had a list of what they consider climate solutions, saying the things that should be included in a stimulus if the uh, if there is going to be a, like a stimulus bill pertaining to oh. COVID-19 relief, this should be, these oh things God. should be part of it under green energy. Yeah, so CCUS and, and other things that people would probably accept, but they include it, they lump in CCUS, or in, which would be mostly enhanced oil recovery within it. And that's significant because it's not just now, earlier this year, kind of the same thing happened where... Um, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and several other Republicans, they also wrote some kind of letter or some, at least issued some kind of public statement to, to a similar effect, saying that they support this kind of thing as well. So, yeah, there's 
that that just is to answer your question kind of more concisely, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them were up on the Senate floor at that time saying we have the solutions we need and they include CCUS, blah, 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 blah. I wouldn't be surprised if that came up, at least in some senators on the GOP side uh, comments. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I kind of uh, piqued my own curiosity to go back and re- revisit that. <clears throat> you know, it's really um, – it's really, I mean, so ironic. They're trying to introduce this into a COVID relief bill. Like, what kind of relief are we talking about? Heating in your home that you've been evicted from. Um, you mm-hmm. know, and the person who's been evicted isn't, you know, being protected from, from that. Instead, they're, you know, kind of spending on this form, investing in this form of heating fuel. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a sad thought because it's here we are 15 years later going in for another round of this late-stage, toxic, you know, with all kinds of rational excuses. And, you know, we better elect better people to Congress and the House, and I don't mean just Democrats, um, you know, but progressive ones, because, you know, for example, looking at the Markey race, um, you know, I have been supporting Markey in that race, you know, in terms of who I think would be better, um, because of his championing of the Green New Deal. Uh, and also because, you know, to me, it isn't a big plus to have uh, somebody, you know, a Kennedy with charismatic personality features and former ties, you know, to, to fossil fuels and other industries, you know, kind of groomed as the next Trojan horse that we're supposed to admire, um, who, you know, delivers us uh, a whole package of goodies and you know that 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 are not what we want inside a pretty package you know so based on on that you know observation of what goes on in in contemporary politics you know i've been supporting markey i'm like well let him do one more term and then we'll put in a progressive you know or something um but i wonder what kennedy's stance on that is i'm sure he's probably along for the ride as well um, yeah, and you know, just yeah, I agree with you. I, th- I think that you know, Markey is probably still, I mean, objectively speaking, probably one of the most progressive members of the Senate. I mean, maybe not he's not on exactly a parallel with Bernie, but he would be on the more progressive scale of the Senate still, mm-hmm. like maybe more in line with like a probably like a Liz Warren. You could say he's slightly parallel with her, maybe a little less, but you get the point. He's more a little bit more on that spectrum mm-hmm. and. I'm not sure that is just to go back to the intercept article. That was a source who said, Oh yeah, I talked to Markey and he said, for sure, if we actually move forward with a green new deal, that CCUS will be part of it. But of course this source, if you look at who he was, he was a major proponent of CCUS. Sure. And it's not like he had like docking, you know, but so maybe, maybe, you know, yeah. he had a vested interest. Yeah, right. Talked, so I mean, I don't wanted, want to say for sure. No, 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 no. I, I totally get that. I'm not, you know, I'm just, discussing this whole thing in case somebody listens to this and says, oh, well, I shouldn't vote for Markey. You know, they shouldn't be thinking that way because they're oh, still right. better. That's where, we are. That's where we are. And, no, that guy was uh, basically recruiting him. He was roping him in to endorsing something he was selling, right? So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, we don't know the truth of that um, from what right. you, you know about the article, right? So, yeah, we'll have to revisit that, too. Um, So, you know, this is uh, basically another reason for, uh, you know, seriousness and caution um, 
as we look ahead in preparation to really become more activated because, as you're pointing out, people aren't activated about this yet. Um, we're not going to be able to just snooze in happy comfort uh, once, hopefully, a uh, Democrat is elected to the top office. We're going to have to do a lot more, and this really exemplifies that we're cycling back into an even more toxic part of the curve um, with both parties, right? So, uh, you know, we, those people have to be, you know, both parties. You know, uh, conventional Democrats who go along on this bipartisan ride really need the scrutiny and they need progressive people to uh, replace them who are not uh, economically captured um, by this whole host of industries of which this is one. Um, What are you looking at in terms of uh, upcoming stories that you're tracking that we might um, you know, be seeing in your reporting or in a future radio show, you know, what are you, what else are you covering nowadays? Yeah, well, yeah, so I'm, I'm based in um, California, so I follow the uh, California legislature pretty closely and the Newsom administration, so recently put out a um, story on how the, the administration was during um, COVID was pushing fracking in a 97% Latino community and a farm working community called Lost Hills, and I actually have a, um, so that was in June, but I have a follow-up story coming out on that, more permits in the same community that were uh, given, it's been, it's not not a secret, some of the environmental groups have spoken out about this, but did, uh, gave Chevron more permits, and there's some other things that Chevron's been doing in that community as well, so I think that it, it's pretty significant because Newsom is, uh, on one hand, kind of held as the a climate, a national climate leader, you could say, but on the other hand, you know, fracking and oil drilling still continues in these um, impacted communities like Lost Hills. So that's definitely something I'm working on, and I'll be continuing to work on the issue that we've been talking a lot about today, which is CCUS, including looking at an actual area uh, where there's movement in Wyoming. Um, so that's kind of that definitely hasn't really been reported that much. Local coverage, yeah, I think that it can't because it speaks to conditions. Right. Uh, so, um, well, that's good. So, so listeners, uh, you know, definitely check out the Real News Network. Um, look for Steve Horn's reporting. Um, Real News also does, you know, terrific video work, uh, documentary style. It's actually, a, you know, I. I as a former television producer, longtime television producer, I'm pretty impressed um, by the quality of the video reporting, um, you know, that Real News does week after week after week on progressive topics. And, you know, it's really kind of great. Um, you know, being very much a print person, I love reading the blogs and the articles, but I know that, you know, visually oriented people will also appreciate their video work because, you know, they're really set up for that. And it's, costly to do that kind of video work and usually we don't see it that much of it in independent media so you know check out the real news network and and see porn's work and everybody's work there because uh, it's really great um so i think we're heading into our last uh, minutes here on connect the dots it's been great having you on again steve and we will definitely have to keep up the conversation tracking you know these developments um, you know, so I really look forward to that. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. 
Yeah, thank you. And, yeah, and thanks for the kind words about the Real News Network. And, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It was, it was great. Yeah. Well, you know, um, you know, in this COVID debacle debate, whatever, you know, it's really quite something to have, like, a community of very poorly informed uh, right-wing people, for example, saying, fake news, fake news, somebody actually told me, came on my wall, who's a sort of Facebook friend with whom I'm only minimally in touch because we know each other through other people and we've really had very little exchange of any kind. She comes on, she goes, you should be reading independent media. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm kind of like, do you know who you're talking to? You know, like (laughs) I've been covering independent media. I've been criticizing mainstream media, right, for a decade, you know, uh, because I woke up to the whole thing with their coverage of fracking and, and all of this. And, you know, and so somebody's coming and, and you know, uh, it was just like, oh, now we don't even own what we, you know, or the blood, sweat, and tears that, you know, went into uh, this kind of media and this kind of movement and, you know, seeing it bloom through all the fine work that everybody's doing and everything, you know, and then I have a right-wing person come on and, you know, tell me to, you know, watch watch independent media. Um, so that was kind of cute. But, um in any case, you know, maybe another time we'll also talk about the inter- uh, intersection between COVID and climate change because, you know, yes. there's there's a lot going on in that realm, too, and I think it's kind of underreported. So, and that's, and I'm very interested in, in the whole COVID thing as well. So, uh, and that's what a lot of my, you know, kind of Facebook curating of content and sort of interacting with people in, in conversations and, you know, groups of people talking is about, if that interests any listeners. So I'll sign off for this week's Connect the Dots. Thank you for being with us. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern time on the Progressive Radio Network. Uh, I'm Allison Rose-Levy. Be well, everyone. Stay safe. All right. We're out. Awesome. We did well with it. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool, I mean, yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm, yeah, it's really great. I'm really, like, I'm kind of a little bit obsessed with the, um, what's what's it called, the psyops around whether the COVID virus is real and what should be done. You know, that whole thing drives me crazy. Uh, as a longtime health reporter, that there is a significant segment of health-oriented people who are, you know, really uh, – missing the boat on that one. Um, it's just, you know, it's unbelievable. So that's a whole thing. If you trip over interested in anything in that regard, that's a lot of my focus because people who are knowledgeable about health in certain ways just miss the boat on public health because of this. Uh, it's really because of the vaccination obsession um, and, mm-hmm. and other reasons too, you know. So that's a lot of the content that I'm and the science that I'm looking at nowadays. Totally. Anyway, great talking with well, you. Yeah, Thank you so much. Well,